Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have booked shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to episode 26. As always, you can find us on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. There you will find links to all streaming information, as well as social media. And make sure you give us a follow on Instagram at Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. This episode features an interview with Daryl Taberski from Snapcase. Unfortunately, there was a technical difficulty at the beginning of the interview, so we lost about two or three minutes of our discussion. Luckily, we didn't lose anything too important. It was just mainly my introduction, which I'm re-recording now, obviously. So the interview will jump right in with Daryl talking about his high school and growing up and meeting friends from the hardcore scene. So without any further ado, enjoy the conversation, and I'll be back for a little bit after the episode. Went to school in West Seneca, and then went to um, a private high school, which is actually where I met um, Tim, who, who, who later played drums in Snapcase, and then also um, uh, Dennis Merrick, who played drums in Earth Crisis. He went to school with us, too. So all three of us were at the same high school. Um, those guys were a couple years younger than me. Cool. So yeah, I guess that kind of brings the next uh, topic I had in mind then. So um, like kind of bridging the gap between like punk and hardcore, like what were your early like musical influences? So I would say that I started getting into music, like really getting into music probably in my early teen years. Um, Definitely the first things that caught my interest, you know, um, stuff I heard playing out of cars in the, in the neighborhood. I, you know, in West Seneca, there's a lot of heavy metal coming out of Camaros and Trans Ams back in those days. And uh, so, you know, it was a lot of the kind of more like radio um, rock, radio metal, like Van Halen and things like that. But I had some cooler cousins, older cousins, and um, they were listening to, at the time, a lot of uh, Rush, Ozzy, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. So I, I would say that Rush and Ozzy were the first, like, um, hard, harder rock groups that I really got into. Um, and then, I don't know if you remember these, but they had those um, Columbia uh, record clubs where you would order music. And, and my father was ordering um, cassettes. And he said, you know what, why don't you pick two cassettes for yourself. So I remember going through that catalog, like really, you know, carefully and like looking, reading everything and trying to know what, you know, what I wanted, but I didn't really know what I wanted. I just knew I wanted something that I didn't hear on the radio all the time. So I picked, um, this is kind of interesting, but I did, I picked Metallica Master of Puppets and I picked um, The Cure of Boys Don't Cry. And two completely different things, but you know, I, I love both of those tapes like so much. So that was when I started getting a little deeper into music, um, and 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 digging a little deeper with uh, you know heavier stuff. And then of course came like um, more Iron Maiden, and um, uh, what else was there? Th- this is all leading up to. Um, this is also in junior high school. And so for me in junior high school also, this is when um, hip hop started coming out. So like Run DMC, um, 
early Beastie Boys, L Cool J, like, um, you know, that was like the more mainstream rap at the time, but like, that's kind of what I was starting to get into also, um, you know, which later led, you know, I, I always loved, you know, hip hop. So I got even more into that kind of stuff a little bit later on, but, um, Boogie Down Productions and Public Enemy, of course, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's... This is all pre... No, I'm sorry. That's really cool with the hip-hop influence. I, I wasn't even prepared to have that kind of gathered for this interview. That's, that's been a big thing for me. Um, I was... Like, I grew up more on, like, rap and hip-hop before I got into, like, hardcore and punk. Um, and I actually saw Keras one for the first time a couple years ago. So that was, like, like a bucket list type thing to cool to see him live, you know? Yeah, but I guess we're kind of jumping into, like, that era now where we could kind of like get more into like hardcore and punk bands like so kind of what were your like first like exposure to like the the music and all that kind of stuff so i was also heavily into bmx um racing i raced bmx bikes and um up until my my bike got stolen um and then because i couldn't afford a, a, a new bmx bike i, I literally I saved and saved and did odd jobs to buy every single piece for that BMX bike. So when it was stolen, it was like, it, it crushed me, but then I, I knew I didn't have the money to get another bike like that. So um, I got into skateboarding. And so I remember buying my first skateboard, so I was heavily into that. And at the time, I think even at the skateboard ramp, in um, we built our own vert ramp here at, uh, in West Seneca. And, um, you know, a lot of the kids we were listening to back then was sort of like what we heard on um, some skate videos at the time. So we're starting to get into some punk, but I didn't really know what it was that much because we were really still playing a lot of um, Guns N' Roses and Metallica and stuff like that at the, at the ramp. Um, but then uh, my freshman year of high school, I went to a new school. I went to that private school. And um, the kids sitting right behind me in homeroom first day I meet this kid and uh, we have a lot in common he was a skateboarder he raced BMX bikes we had the exact same birthday it was just the weirdest thing and we found out that we had raced bikes against each other in the past like things like that so he was like you like punk right and I was like well kind of I, I don't really know much about it so the next day he brought me uh, like a cassette tape where he put like a bunch of stuff on it and it was um it was Misfits, Sex Pistols, um, Dead Kennedys, and The Exploited. And uh, those were the first four, like, punk groups I got into heavily, you know. And, um, you know, I listened to that tape over and over. But I think where it really took off then was um, WBNY and uh, the local um, the college radio station. And they had a um, hardcore like night. I think it was I think it was Thursday nights at the time. And it would start late, like ten o'clock at night, and it would go to midnight. And um, it was the kind of deal where I had to like wrap tin foil on my antenna to kind of tune the station in the way I needed to. And I think I used to even go to bed holding the antenna with my hand, and I'd fall asleep and just hit record. And when the tape would hit the end of it. I would, the, would wake me up for a second and I'd flip it, hit record again, and then in the morning I was like really excited to listen to the show because I, I couldn't stay up late enough. But um, that introduced me to 
um, New York hardcore. But that that radio show was like, you know, they were playing everything from like, you know, a lot of Slapshot and things like Corrosion of Conformity, but then also like, um, you know, Agnostic Front, Chromags, um, you know, that that wave of of New York hardcore. Um, you know, then then some early Sick of It All stuff like that. So was this like around the time that like Revelation and all that stuff was starting to pop off too? Then like the first couple of Rev releases. Yeah, at this time, really early for that stuff. So it would have been like, um, you know, Sick of It All, Seven Inch, and um, you know maybe some of the early like Youth of Today stuff like that. Um, yeah. So then, like, when you start getting more into the the scene, I guess, like, do you go to like the big shows first, like the like the bigger, like, kind of like when I got into like hardcore and punk, like I saw like like bigger shows at like Water Street Music Hall type thing, you know what I mean? Like before I got into like the DIY aspect of it. So like, wh- like how was it for you? No, so for me, the shows were at this time still super small, and um, the first show I went to see was SNFU with. Um, it was actually, uh, what was that? They played, it was, well, there was a Rochester band um, called, uh, shoot, it was SNFU, there was a, a band called Leviathan, which um, might have been like some early Cannibal Corpse guys. And um, also, uh, it'll come, oh, Hunger Artist. Okay. Hunger Artist was, they were from Rochester, yep. so um, they played that, and um, I don't know, that, that was my first punk hardcore show, it was, it was crazy, and then um, I think my second show was Bad Brains, and um, that was at UV, and um, it was Bad Brains with um, uh, Third Man In, which later became New Balance, which then became Zero Tolerance, so this was like and and the Goo Goo Dolls actually did like a um they were like the unannounced surprise like opener. That was when they were still really punk. So it was like Third Man and Goo Goo Dolls, Bad Brains. So that's kind of yeah, that's kind of getting you right into it there. I mean, I mean, Bad Brains for me is like one of my favorite bands. But now you're talking about like seeing like Buffalo bands too. And one thing that's been interesting for me with doing this podcast is like I always knew Goo Goo Dolls had like a connection to like the Buffalo scene and like the punk scene and stuff. But I never knew like how strong of a connection they had like with like helping out local bands and you know like playing like the smaller shows like that so it's interesting to see like that it had a big, big influence on a lot of you like you guys back then you know what i mean yeah the Goo dolls would play um they would open a lot of the, the punk shows at that time you know um i think i saw them with um social distortion also back then and you know depends what you think big is you know like at that time like big was like 200 50 people you know 200 people at social distortion and the goo dolls you know um so but that radio show was where i knew everything that was going on the radio show on those thursday nights they would announce the shows that were coming up i think like maybe the third or fourth show i saw was agnostic front um and then Slapshot. Was there, I mean, you mentioned the Bad Brain show, like, was there ever, like, one show where you were just kind of like, man, this is it, like, I'm ready to, like, this is a scene I want to be a part of, or did it all just kind of happen organically as you kind of, like, started going to more, and, like, listening to more of the music? 
the first show, SNFU was, um, they're like, they were one of the like, greatest like live punk bands. I mean, they were, and they really crossed hardcore and punk. So back then, you know, I wasn't really sure. Like, I just knew I loved this heavy, like underground music. I didn't care if it was hardcore, it was punk, it was metal. It was kind of like all the same dudes were going to all the same shows. Like, um, back then, like, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Alex Lee from Kennel Corpse, the bass player. He went to all the punk and hardcore shows. I mean, he, he would go to Youth of Today and he, he would go to all these shows. And then, like, um, you know, the same thing with the Goo Dolls. Those guys were at all those shows, too. So, like, you know, you got punk guys and metal guys and hardcore kids, you know. So it was all like the same deal, you know. And, um, but that first show, for sure, that just blew me away. And then seeing Bad Brains right after that was just like, holy shit, you know. So, you know. And, and honestly, at the Bad Brains show was Third Man In, and, and that was Mark Zero Tolerance. Mark Tolerance. So before Zero Tolerance, of course. But like that was like my first real exposure to like a straight edge group live. And... Um, I just, I'll never forget him um, getting up on stage, they're playing, and some guy with a mohawk in the crowd yells, uh, straight edge sucks, right? And uh, Mark walks right up to the front of the stage and he just goes, shut up. <laughs> I, thought, I just thought it was like the coolest thing, like this guy's ready to throw down over straight edge, and I was like, this is this is cool. Oh. And um, yeah, so that, that was it. And what really cemented me into like, Hardcore and New York hardcore um, was youth of today, without a doubt. Um, just uh, Ray's stage stage presence, um, the message. His um, he was so sincere, but he was so into his message, and um, you know, I, I don't know. It's just it, whether it was straight edge or anti racism or whatever they were you know, talking about at the time, it was like, it just would pump you up so much, so. Yeah, I got into hardcore a little bit later than you guys, obviously, because I was born in 81, but um, I remember getting uh, Can't Close My Eyes on cassette tape when I was like 15, and still to this day, hearing the opening guitar on that Expectations is just, it's so hard, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, but that kind of leads me into, so you're seeing a lot of those bands like Youth of Today and Judge and, and from interviewing like Scott Vogel and Jay Galvin, I gather that a lot of the shows help, happened at, at the River Rock out in uh, Lockport. So, so, oh, so the River Rock was um, in Buffalo. That was, that was not in Buffalo. Okay. No, the River Rock was in Buffalo and it was um, kind of the west side of Buffalo. Okay. So it's, it's on Niagara Street. But some of the shows that I was already telling you about um, were before the River Rock. So, you know, um, well, Bad Brains was at the University of Buffalo, but Agnostic Front and Slapshot, I saw them at a place called Metal Shop that was in Tonawanda. Um, then there was a club called the Pipe Dragon downtown. And um, you would get like a Pipe Dragon membership card. I still have mine somewhere. And uh, there I saw like um, Youth of Today for the first time. I saw Seven Seconds. I saw Dag Nasty there. Um, so uh, some Discord type bands. Um, so that was like that. And then 
after that, um, we started seeing the River Rock. Now, and then the River Rock was like, you know, that was all your your typical um, Rev bands. You know, that was Judge, Gorilla Biscuits, and all that stuff. Okay. I don't know why I always thought that place was in Lockport for whatever reason. I, for some reason, probably just thought that. But, um, so another thing that I've always kind of wondered and just never really thought to ask any of these guys, but, like, you guys all ended up being in bands and you were all kind of going to shows around the same time. Like, had you guys already kind of, like, all started networking together? Like, like dudes that ended up being, like, in Despair or Slugfest, like, you guys. Like, did you guys all know each other, like, in the, like, late 80s, early 90s? Or did you guys kind of get to know each other more, like, when you were in bands and stuff? You know what I mean? So, yeah, so it definitely would be, like, the very end of the 80s um, and, and 90 was, like, you know, going to the River Rock um, and, um, I mean, we did know each other, but, like, you know, I was more, you know, tight with, like, I knew a lot of more, like, the guys from where I grew up or the went to my high school. So, like, I knew the West Seneca guys and the Southtown guys. Um, you know, Vogel and, and those guys were more like um, North Towns. I think Vogel was from Williamsville, but like a lot of the kids that were going to the shows at the River Rock were from Kenmore and Tonawanda, so just north of Buffalo. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we kind of knew each other, but the scene was starting to get big enough that, you know, um, then you just get to kind of know the other bands. So, like, when we started, there was, um, you know, of course, Zero Tolerance, but then there was, um, I'm trying to think of, No Joke was a band from West Seneca, um, The Watchmen were from Lockport, um, and then, of course, you had Slugfest, um, which was Jay and Scott and, and, and John um, from River Rock, um, Support which those guys ended up, you know, Garrett um, ended up in uh, Texas as a reason eventually, and, and John and Bob ended up in Snapcase, and they were in support, and Glenn Szymanski was in support, so that was another really good band. So, yeah, and then there was uh, all these other groups, too, like Cinderblock and all, uh, so many groups at the time, you know. So now I guess we're kind of getting into the early era then, um, but before we jump in, now I know you played bass in the beginning, and from what I gather from a lot of the research, is that kind of happened by default. But like, had you had any interest, like, in playing any instruments or anything like that before you you picked up the bass to play uh, for like Solid State and early Snapcase? So I was probably myself and our first singer, who was like my friend that lived in my neighborhood, and we had the skateboard ramp. It was in his backyard. Um, we were like skateboarding was kind of first, and then like the band stuff. So. Um, he and I were the ones that both pumped each other up on like the groups we heard on the radio shows and stuff like that. And we decided to start our own group. Um, and I got my cousin Scott, you know, into punk. I'm like, dude, cause he was taking guitar lessons, but he was playing like really cheesy music. So I was like, you gotta get into punk, you know? So I was like giving him like taping him like punk records and stuff like that. And, um, Descendants and, minor threat, social distortion, stuff like that, I remember giving him. Um, and actually, I remember us trying to play, like, minor threat and social distortion songs, like, at our first practices, you know. But, uh, so, yeah, and um, 
found a drummer at the school I was going to. Um, so yeah, that's how that started. But you know, still we weren't really even that much of like a straight hardcore band. You know what I mean? We're just still learning how to play and figuring out how to write a song. And, you know, I think we were doing like we did like a minor threat cover. We really butchered it. But, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think our first show was actually, believe it or not, opening for um, Uniform Choice. <laughs> crazy. Because that was like one of my favorite bands. So. Yeah, it's it's just crazy to think about all the good bands that came through Buffalo in that era. You know what I mean? Like it's like I mean I guess some a lot of them came through here too, but just you know you you just you see all the old flyers. I mean I guess you were there, but like I, I like I said I got into it more like ninety five, ninety six. So I look back and well, there's a couple of sites like a a couple of Instagram people now that like post all those old flyers and stuff. So it's cool to like just look back on all that stuff. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um. But so yeah, I guess like so. How long how long were you guys doing like just like Solid State before it, it like like officially became Snapcase? I know it was a lot of, it had to do with like the the singer change and stuff like that. But so Solid State had two singers and a couple drummers, um, and even some other changes. But you know, um, you know, I always like at the beginning when I was just like I was the bass player. I, I it was the easiest instrument to learn how to play kind of a thing. You know, Scott played guitar, we got a drummer, my my friend sang. And then when he left, my other friend became the singer, Chris. And that was Chris's gallus. That's, that's um, he stayed the singer when we became Snapcase. Um, and I was still playing bass on those first couple of demos. Um, and then on the first seven inch, and then another song that we recorded for the first Victory Comp. Um, I was playing bass on all of that. Um, interesting thing too that's important to note about the scene so for Buffalo like I I mentioned all the punk bands and hardcore bands like how it started but this is where metal and and kind of bigger shows started coming back in to this to this and um, Zero Tolerance was starting to get bigger and bigger but they were becoming you know also a little bit more metal and so that's what we wanted to do also. So I remember we kicked the drummer out because he wasn't playing double bass. You know, we wanted a guy that played double bass. So um, that's when the show started being like um, at the Sky Room. So the Sky Room was like a bigger venue. And that's where like there'd be like over a thousand people, 1200 people, stuff like that. And that would be like, um, you know, our old singer Chris and I, we would go to all the death metal shows there. We'd go see Carcass and Creator and, um, oh, God. But then I remember Agnostic Front, Sick of It All played there together, and Zero Tolerance played on that bill. And there's just so many good shows there. Um, you know, even later on, I think it was uh, Quicksand open for Danzig there. Like, it was just good, crazy shit, you know. Um, but our all the bands, the, and Buffalo then were like trying to be like um, a little more technical, a little more metal. Yeah, and obviously there's there's always been that aspect with with like the harmonics and the guitar parts that that Snapcase did. So was that like kind of where you guys got the the influence? Was like from the metal? Like like where did you guys? Because because I like before and I guess even really since after you haven't really heard too many like hardcore bands use those kind of harmonics. You know what I mean? So the harmonics started. Um, on the song comatose for us <clears throat> and um 
our guitar player at the time, Joe, Joe Smith, he, um, awesome guy, by the way, but he, he was like the biggest metalhead out of any of us. And I don't remember, I should, I should message him one of these days and say, what was the metal band that you learned the guitar harmonica off of? Because he, I remember like our singer, Chris and I going over to Joe's parents' house and he had a basement, uh, bedroom kind of a deal. And I remember being down there and like going like, check out this thing I learned how to do on my guitar. I learned it from one of my metal albums. And it was like the harmonic thing. And um, so, yeah, we that's how that started for us. Um, but we turned it into more of like, um, you know, Joe had that, but like myself and, and Scott, my cousin, our guitar player, we were, our favorite band at the time was uh, Verbal Assault. So um, we just, we love the groove of verbal assault. Like they played hardcore, but like they had this like different kind of rhythm going to it. And um, it wasn't quite uh, as stripped down and, and, and as um, the DC stuff. Verbal assault was like, I don't know. They just combined like hardcore that we love, but it had this, this different kind of groove. It was the, the guitar playing playing of uh, Pete Kramayek, who was the guitar player of Verbal Assault. So um, combine that with a harmonic, and that's how we got Snapcase, basically. How that, that, you know, trademark Snapcase sound started. Yeah, it's definitely a trademark sound. I mean, you can, you know, so I guess now we're talking about Comatose. I was thinking about this before, too. Like, aside from, like, a couple comps and split appearances, like, you guys pretty much the whole catalog was with Victory. Like, had you guys decided... Like, like when, like, I just kind of take me back, like, with the seven inch and like talking to Tony initially to, to put it out and everything. Well, I think it was like at least the second round of us sending a demo out. Like, we sent our demo out initially to like everything that looked like a hardcore label that was in maximum rock and roll. You know, we mailed it to them and, you know, the write up. And, um, you know, some people responded, but no one was ready to do anything with us. And then, um, the second round with the demo, Tony responded and said, um, yeah, this is interesting. I'm not so sure what I think. And this is so typical of Tony, but he said that all of his friends really like were loving the demo. And he's like, so, you know, that's enough for me. I want you guys to come to Chicago and play and then we'll see. So I remember we, um, we borrowed a car from a guy that we knew whose car had a trailer hitch on it and we we rented a u-haul trailer and we drove to chicago in this rent in this kid's car and um <laughs> which we blew the engine and i remember we literally like we all pushed it into back into his parents driveway when we got home in the middle of the night and like that was it like it was like a really shitty thing to do but like <laughs> mission accomplished we made it to chicago and back and we had no money to pay for this kid's car but like you know <laughs> That was the deal. But uh, we went to Chicago and we played a show and it went well and Tony signed us. And at the time, he was, um, Tony was working as a waiter and living in a basement apartment. And he just had some boxes of records in his basement apartment. And that was victory. Now, obviously, we'll talk more about like you guys kind of being on the label and watching the label grow and stuff like that. Um, but I guess another thing that kind of comes to mind is. So, like, in this era of you guys having a couple demos out and then releasing a 7-inch uh, on Victory, like, kind of before the 7-inch comes out, I guess, like, were you guys 
like already kind of starting to play with like more established bands or was it mostly like still like local and or regional stuff at that point or regional like i think we would play like erie pennsylvania rochester that's pretty much it (laughs) buffalo you know at that in those days i don't think we played anywhere else okay so then Um, maybe batavia (laughs) (laughs) I think I've been to like one random show in Batavia once, uh, you know, as a kid or whatever, or a teenager, which I guess as a kid. But um, so the seven inch ends up coming out in victory. Like, were you guys at that point? Do you guys start doing more touring, or was it still kind of just? Because I know, like back then, obviously hardcore bands would do a seven inch, and then they would just play like, like you're saying, like weekends here and there. Like there, there weren't a lot of like, it didn't seem like anyways there was many bands touring back then. You know what I mean? Like like like, like they do now. Um, we definitely started playing out more. I wouldn't necessarily call it touring, touring, um, as I came to know it later, but we just kind of expanded like that circle. So, you know, I think we go from, you know, maybe Erie to maybe Pittsburgh and Albany and, um, Cleveland, stuff like that. You know, that's kind of like the circle started getting a little bit bigger up into Canada a little bit, Hamilton, um, with the chokehold chokehold guys and then um you know syracuse you know um so stuff like that um but nothing like getting all the way to like california or anything or florida yet you know right so so yeah i guess the the seven inch comes out comatose and then was it like a year or so in between that and looking glass self or was it or maybe like two years right probably two years two years 92 to 94 so now i know you transitioned to vocals at that point like how like how soon before you guys started recording you know what i mean like were you were you transitioning for the for the full length at that Uh, point i guess we let me think about that i think we were um we had already written a lot of the songs with chris for looking glass self um and you know i don't even a lot of those songs aren't even my lyrics they were his lyrics i think um some of them anyway and we went to record uh with don fury in new york city and that was my first time recording as a vocalist um you know i didn't really know what i was doing you know (laughs) figuring this out um it wasn't something i really aspired to do you know um become the singer you know it was kind of like i was more like the band leader you know and um so i kind of got nominated by the other guys like you should just do this kind of like you're the one that drives you know what we're doing as a band all the time and stuff like that so um that was sort of how that happened did you was there like a conversation with with like tony and victory like before you started recording like this is what's happening and you know like was he cool with it i guess too I guess I don't remember that, you know, because Chris, Chris was really like a great front man. So like he, he was, um, you know, he looked really cool, but he also like went, when he went off on stage, like he had like amazing stage presence and stage energy. Um, so that was really kind of like hard for me to kind of like, okay, now, you know, but he was my best friend, you know, Chris was like hands down my best friend, you know? So, that was tough too because um, kicking him out of the band, he, you know, our friendship really like 
that was it at that time. You know, we're, we're best friends again now, but like back then that was it. So, um, you know, uh, so we, w- we went to New York, we recorded, I guess, five or six songs with Donna Fury, and then we came back and uh, we kicked out our drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and we also, um, that's when we got Tim as our drummer, and, and Tim w- was playing in bands with, with Vogel, and, and that was kind of like getting, having Tim join our band pissed off a lot of other people. So, but Tim joined Snapcase and we wrote three more songs and that was um, uh, Looking Glass Self, Dream Me and Filter. And so we're like, well, these are, we didn't put the record out yet. We're like, these songs are the coolest songs. So we went and recorded those three songs um, here in Buffalo with Fred, uh, again, Fred Betchen. Yeah, I feel like his name's come up, like I feel like other bands have recorded there that I've interviewed. I could be wrong, but the name definitely rings a bell. Yeah, definitely people have, you know. I think he's probably even recorded Earth Crisis. Um, but anyway, we did those three songs with Fred, and then we're like, oh, these songs got to be on the album. So we kind of took those three and meshed them together with the songs we did in New York with Don Fury. And um, the Don Fury experience was actually, for us, not a great experience. He was have gone through a rough patch in his life. And, uh, sorry, I'm yawning here, getting tired, but he, um, you know, he, we were sort of an afterthought for him. And, and we were a band that really needed someone to kind of show us the ropes at still at that time. So, um, I remember the greatest thing we did there was we used the same guitar amp that they recorded grilled biscuits on. And, you know, so we were just like all excited about that, but, there weren't many other positive takes from that trip. <laughs> and I guess one other thing before we move on from the recording session, then like if, if it's like your, your first time really singing and stuff like that, like did anybody have to like, like help you through it or like coach you through it? Or was it just kind of like you like just kind of going through the motions or whatever? Yeah, it was just me going through the motions. So I think that's why when we recorded drain me and looking glass self and filter, I was so, um, you know, it was, it was now not my first experience doing that, so I was, you know, better prepared. And those and plus those were like truly my songs, yeah. you know, like, so. Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask. If those were your lyrics. So now at that point, then do you guys start like like touring more after the record comes out, or and like like do you hit the West Coast before the the um California takeover, or was that the first time on the West Coast? Oh, so California takeover comes years down. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. From, from this point, so. Um, no, the first tour we did, uh, out West was with, um, Lifetime and, um, we played a show with them in Vermont and this, I, this is how I remember it, but I, I don't know if it's true, but I think this is how it kind of went down. We played a show with them in Vermont and I think it was 108 and Lifetime and us and, um, they, those guys said, oh, I know what it was. They said, you need to have uh, Margie book you guys. And Margie was who booked their shows, Margie Alder. And um, so we're like, yeah. So we hooked up with Margie. And then um, Margie's like, well, Lifetime's going uh, to tour. Why don't you guys just kind of connect with them? And so she sent both of us out west together. And our first time in California and on the west coast was with Lifetime. And um, 
Yeah, it was, it was awesome. And then after that is when um, Earth Crisis and Strife signed the victory. And um, that's when we started playing more shows with those guys. So now I, I gather you guys were like all in college at this point, but like was was this kind of like a full-time thing for you guys or were you guys like all working like like part, part-time or like side jobs too or like? We all had jobs. Um, we all had jobs and we were um, mostly all going to school. I think maybe we were all going to school. I don't remember. But um, we played all of our shows in the summer and then during the breaks, you know, like Easter break, you know, spring break or whatever, we'd go tour. Um, every winter, we literally leave the day after Christmas and start, we'd do like a, you know, solid week or two out on the road. Was that weird for your families at all to like, kind of just be like going on tour where they are already kind of used to it by the, like once it started happening or? I mean, at that point, you know, you're like in your early twenties or 20 years old, like you don't really think about what your family's thinking. You just go do it. You know, it's like, I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, I just remember being gone all the time. Like, you know, I did school and when I wasn't at school, I was on tour, you know? And then like stuff like Europe and like did other countries start happening too, or was it just mainly Europe at first or? So we never thought about that. I mean, like at this time, you know, we were just like, we, we started to hear the fans went to Europe, but still early to mid nineties, it wasn't that common for um, American bands to go tour Europe, hardcore bands. Um, you know, you knew like some of the bigger ones did, but, um, you know, uh, and we had heard that sick of it all had been going there and was doing well. So, um, again, like we looked up to those guys big time. Um, we might've played one show with them or maybe not. I don't remember, but I remember getting a call saying sick of it all wants to know if you guys would be interested in going to Europe with them on their next European tour and um, Looking Glass Self had just come out and we were just starting to do a lot more shows and planning tours with Looking Glass Self and um, all of a sudden it was just like uh, at the, initially it was like a nine week tour of Sick of It All nine or eleven or something crazy but it ended up being like scaled down to like seven weeks but um, we're like we just couldn't believe it. We're going to Europe. Our parents, this is what, like where the families came and they're like, holy shit, this is like a real thing. Like these guys are going to Europe, like with their band, like, oh my God, you know? Um, and we were going to be sharing a tour bus, you know, with like our heroes, you know, hardcore legends, sick of it all. So like, I just remember being really scared, really nervous. Like, I hope these guys like us. I hope they're not like going to beat us up all the time or something, you know, like, <laughs> And they were just like the world's nicest guys. And like, it just, you know, um, it was like sending Snapcase to um, training camp. I swear, like we learned so much on that tour. We learned how to be a real band. We learned how to like, you know, take this more serious, how to prepare yourself, how to, you know, feed into the crowd a little bit more. Um, and we came back and I remember one of the first shows we played after that European tour we played in um, Syracuse and um, after we played I just remember people being like like holy shit you guys are like have turned a corner like you guys are like completely next level now like and you know it's one of those things like when you're doing it and you're in the band you don't realize it but when you start getting feedback from other people it's like 
okay, maybe things are changing here. So yeah, no, that's and this and this is actually jumping into the era when I first started kind of be, becoming more familiar with you guys. Like I said, I kind of got more into stuff like ninety five, ninety six. And if I'm jumping ahead, obviously, like let me know because, like I told you before the interview, like I kind of have a lot of notes and a lot of stuff to go over. So. Um, but like, I remember seeing you guys for the first time in like 96 on that, uh, I would, I would think it was like the second warp tour in Buffalo. And I think, I feel like you guys played last and it was like, just like dirt was just like flying in the air and like dudes were, like wearing like bandanas over their faces. And like, I'd never really seen like that kind of like big, like show where it's, I mean, I, again, it's outside. So it's a warp tour, you know, but it was still like, yeah. holy shit, you know, this is really cool. So like, it wasn't, it wasn't the first warp tour because the first warp tour yeah. we didn't play, but it might've been the second yeah. one that came through. Yeah, it was the second one. Yeah, it was '96 because I I was I would have been too young. 90, I mean, I was too young in '96, so I lied to my mom and said I was doing something else that day. But you know, and obviously having a kid now, I kind of if my son does that when I get when he gets older, I'm gonna be like, man, I'll be thinking about it all day. Like, is this kid really in Buffalo at a show? <laughs> you know? So, but like, I I guess what I'm saying is like me seeing you guys play that day, like you guys already like kind of had it. I could tell like you guys like were basically like a, seemed like a professional type band or whatever. Like, you guys were tight on stage and stuff. Like, did like after that European tour so for you like it was did it come easy I don't want to say come easy but you know what I mean like like looking out to like play like bigger shows because as we'll get to later like you you toured like like played shows like Deftones and stuff like that like was it ever like looking out there like damn like this is a lot of people tonight you know what I mean like um well we played some big shows in Europe with Sick of It All Sick of It All was really big in some of those cities um and we were also playing festivals with them so like all those festivals had like a hardcore tent or a punk tent or whatever you want to call it back then. And um, that was when we first started playing to like, you know, more people. Um, but, you know, learning, you know, when the stages got bigger and learning how to use that space and, um, learning how to pay more attention to sound, you know, that's when that stuff all started to come in to play a little bit more. Um, Cause you know, like if you're, if you're thinking like, if you have the same mentality on stage, sometimes playing like a VFW hall, but you're on stage in front of like 1500 people, um, sometimes it works out, but a lot of times you, you just, seem like you're at the wrong place and it's not fun for the band and it's not fun for the crowd you know so you know learning how to do that stuff I, you know you asked if it was easy it wasn't easy and like for me and i think for sad case none of this stuff came easy like this has always been like hard work and it's always been like not natural um nothing just kind of just happened like that for us um but that work tour show that you mentioned um we played that and that was I think where we met or were exposed to Deftones and those guys were exposed to us or whatever because um, and then we played like I think it was either that same year or something we crossed paths in Salt Lake City where we were doing a headlining show at this venue called Deviate um, and Deviate had an upstairs and a downstairs and they were Deftones were into a Bad Brains opening for Bad Brains. So they played, we played the early show downstairs and they played the later show upstairs. And I remember like those guys were watching us play our show. And then I remember we went upstairs and watched them play with the Bad Brains. And we got the Deftones, this was before the Warped Tour, 
because we got the Deftones um, promo tape of Around the Fur. And I remember we listened to that cassette tape a lot in our tour van. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's another band. Like, I'm, I've never been huge into them, but, like, I listened, I think that's the tape you're talking about, that around that time, and they they were influential because they like, they would have, like, you guys, I feel like Orange 9mm played with them one time, too. Like, they've they've always kind of yeah. been cool with, like, supporting, like, 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 bands from, like, hardcore and stuff like that, and they still do it to this day, you know, so that was kind of cool for them to do that. But now when you start playing more shows like that, like, with, like, Deftones, you're obviously playing to, like, a different crowd, too, though. So, like, was it... Or had you... Deftones crowd, I mean, when we did the tour of the Deftones, though, it was us and Quicksand and Deftones. So it was, like, not that different of a crowd, but bigger. Um, and the Deftones people were, like, they were big, but, like, they weren't, like, radio big still. You know what I mean? They were not underground, but they weren't, like, a radio rock band either so much. Um, they were sort of in between. We did shows because um, we met them on the work tour. We did uh, shows with Papa Roach eventually. Their crowd was total radio rock and was younger. And their crowd was like, they didn't care really about us. They just wanted to hear the hits from Papa Roach. You know what I mean? Um, so that tour, like, even though those guys were cool guys, um, and a great band, but like they, their crowd was not, that tour was not, we didn't belong in there. It did nothing for us, to be honest. So those kind of tours, um, I was not a big fan of. Some of the other guys liked doing those kind of things more. Um, I'd rather be playing like a really good, um, decent sized show with all like underground bands. Yeah, those always seem like more fun because I mean, I guess I would see, I saw you guys like on a mixture of both kinds of shows because I saw you on the Warp Tour a bunch of times and with the Deftones, but then sometimes you'd play, you know, Water Street's still a big club. But you guys would have like like Orange Nine Millimeter again, like sm- like other like smaller bands too, and it wasn't always like the big, you yeah. know. So it's cool to see like the mixture of shows. But I guess this is kind of when we're getting more into uh, uh, the second album, uh, Progression Through Unlearning. You guys went down to Tracks East for that, and, and I feel like a bunch of bands were kind of doing that around that time. Like, I know the Hatebreed album, if I'm not mistaken, was recorded there around that time. So this was before the before Hatebreed. Um, Lifetime recorded there. So again, those guys were like, yeah, you got to come record with Steve Evans in New Jersey. So we're like, all right, we'll look at that. But we're like, well, Lifetime's not, like, the sound we're going for. So we were like, I didn't trust it, you know what I mean, at first. But then I was like, let's see who else is recording there. And um, I want to see Dead Guy recorded um, Fixation on a Coworker there. And we were like, holy shit, now this sounds killer. And this is heavier than Lifetime. And, you know, we like, we love Lifetime. We're huge on them. But, like. All of a sudden, this is something that sounds more sonically like what we're trying to do, and this sounds so good. So, um, trying to think if there's anything else, but he recorded other things that we knew of or we liked, but um, that was really it for us was Lifetime and, and um, Dead Guy. We went and recorded Progression Through a Learning. And um, because Dead Guy was on Victory and then we did that, Victory's, Victory was becoming more um, familiar with that studio. And so Victory was all about sending 
their uh, East Coast bands there. So that was why then Hatebreed went there, Earth Crisis went there. Um, I think later Thursday went there. Um, at the time, Dillinger Escape Plan was always in and out of there, even though they weren't on Victory, but they were another band that was recording there a lot. So, so yeah, Progression Through Unlearning comes out. At, at this point, you're still, like, there was never a point where you guys, like, I feel like at this point you guys could have discussed, like, like becoming more of, like, a full-time band, but you guys never wanted to, like, going to school and, like, like going the route you guys ended up doing was always the goal, like, to, and, and just kind of do the band, like, part-time, like, because I feel like you guys could have definitely... My internal time clock for remembering when things, certain things happen is terrible, you know? I know, I always hear Voldo say that in interviews, too, like, I, every time he says I'm like, oh, my God, me too, like, um, there's other guys in the scene that are, like, so good with that shit, so I always ask them, like, when did I do this? <laughs> when, did, <laughs> when were we doing this shit, you know? But um, there was a point where we weren't going to school so much because we did tour 10 months out of the year one time. So, I mean, we we're always, always gone. And I remember those years, like, not really having a clue what was going on with the local scene here, you know what I mean? Because we were never here. And um, when you were back home, the last thing you wanted to do was go to a show or listen to hardcore when you were touring for 10 months out of the year. You know, so I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't have time for that, you know, like, so... Um, that's probably when bands like Every Time I Die were really like coming up, you know. And now by this point, obviously, Victory had gone gotten to be a pretty big name within the hardcore scene. And I, I, I feel like obviously you guys had a, had a pretty big hand in helping develop the label because you were like the one of the main bands around this this era. Like what was it like watching that turn from like a basement operation to like the, the big, you know, name that it ended up becoming? Well, I think his best releases before us were um were probably with like integrity and um uh shoot uh, i can't remember some of the other stuff right now um god my memory's terrible but um snapcase earth crisis and strife the three of us um in a lot of ways besides the vic only the strong comps um, we were the, I, I would say we were the three bands that like propelled the record label. Like we were like the three bands that were like the '90s sound um, that was kind of coming. Out, even though we all sounded different from each other, but like then um, that led to victory. Like a lot of bands wanted to be on the label all of a sudden. Like you know that became the label to be on, um, and that was when you know. Um, I, I, again, I don't remember what order this happened, but, you know, eventually, like, Hatebreed, at the time, Hatebreed was, like, you know, a small band. It was, you know, Jamie from Jasta 14, as far as I know, you know, like, so, um, but then, you know, they, they blew up and became huge. Um, and that was when Victory went to, like, a whole nother level. It was with, like, Hatebreed and Thursday, um, and then after that, I guess, Taking Back Sunday, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, There's probably some other ones I'm missing, but yeah. Now we're getting more into, like, the late 90s, I guess, at this point. Well, another thing another thing I didn't mention to you in the notes that, that happened around this time, too, that was important, too, that, and I guess it, it, it also goes back to Buffalo, was that uh, Reason for Living comp that you guys were on um, with Despair and 
Envy and, and Against All Hope was the other band, I'm, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. that that seven inch like for me was also very influential because again, like it was around the time I got into this stuff and like I knew who you guys were, but like it introduced me to Despair and Envy and I'm sure there's a lot of other kids that around that time got that comp and you know it was just cool that you did that comp and then there was the the Misfits tribute comp and uh, was there a Bad Brains cover around that time too or did that come later? Yeah, so. I mean, the Buffalo comps, for, there was a cassette comp a long time ago, too, that was like a big Buffalo comp. Um, so, um, the Nickel City, or uh, what was it called? The, um, what, what was it called? I don't remember, Joe Luca put it out, and it was, it was that was like a cool cassette comp. But then, that 7-inch comp that you just mentioned was like another another awesome thing. The Misfits comp and the Bad Brains comp were both, um, I think they were both on Caroline Records. So that was like a bigger record label. And uh, the guy that worked for Caroline Records was Tom Bergowitz. And he um, he was just like a fan of Snapcase and he wanted to sign Snapcase uh, on a couple different occasions. So he always kept us in mind whenever he was putting together a, a comp or something like that. So. The Misfits thing I always enjoyed because aside from obviously the harmonics, like you guys, it, it sounded pretty similar to the original. I don't think you guys really, you know, um, but you kind of mentioning there, the Caroline thing and him wanting to sign you guys is something that, that I've always kind of thought about. Like, was there ever any talk? I know you guys were on Victory the whole time, but did you guys ever consider or like, like talk to like major labels at all? Or was it just always Victory and never really like any, you know? Yeah, so after progression through learning, um, I want to say we were we were done with our contract with Victory, so we were um, meeting with record labels, and we were open to whatever you know, just to see what the vibe was. Um, typical major labels were not really coming our way, but like some upcoming major labels are like um, there was Tommy Boy Records, which is kind of like a weird thing, and the guy that ran. Tommy Boy Records, his name was like Tom Tom Silverman or something like that. He um, he flew us to New York and I remember going to meet with him and it was like super awkward. Like here I am, like I, I just look like some just average kid, you know, and I go to these headquarters and he's in there like hyping up about how he hangs with Madonna and like all this shit and He's telling me about the shirt that he's wearing is like a one of a kind. And it's, you know, he goes, you know, he's trying to basically sell me on this idea and this concept of like how you got to be unique and original in, in, in this world. And, you know, um, he was trying to figure out what Snapcase's like thing was. And he was like, you know, I sent my marketing team out to your shows and um, we got a couple of things written down and some common themes and, we're thinking we could actually market a Snapcase backpack because backpacks seem to be popular with all the kids that go to the hardcore shows. So they wanted to actually call it a Snapcase backpack. And like, that was like their thing. And um, I, I'll, I'll never forget. He said, so tell me about the new music you guys are writing. Like um, how many uh, BPMs is it at? And I was like, beats per minute. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, Oh, I don't think I ever thought about it like that. I'm like, we're we're a hardcore punk band, you know. Like, I, so I left there thinking like, 
this is not the place for us. Like, this is not, this is not cool. And they were, they were offering good money. Like, it was like, holy shit, like, I can't believe we can get this kind of money, you know? But um, it would have been a mistake, you know? So then we met with um, the singer of The Offspring had a label. And that actually, he had bands like Ensign and um, AFI, and um, they flew us out to California. Nitro Records. Yes, Nitro. So we went and met with Nitro. And um, I don't know why we just weren't psyched on Nitro, but we went out there and met with them. And it was like an interesting trip, but like we didn't leave there thinking like, yeah, we want to sign a Nitro. We played a show out there like, randomly. Like our friends were uh, in the band Far, and Far was playing in Hollywood. So we went to the show to see them, and they like put us on the spot and said, "Yeah, we know these guys from this band Snapcase are here tonight. Why don't they come up and play some songs?" And it was like so. It was like a really crazy thing, and only kind of stuff that happens in California happened there. Like um, we met uh, Alyssa Milano. <laughs> She was at the show hanging out backstage. I don't remember that. Like, so it's just like a weird vibe. But um, we we went back to Victory, and I just remember telling him like, telling Tony like, listen, this is the kind of money that's been sent our way. We just care about making good records. We want to have a good budget for a good producer. Um. We don't care about upfront money, really. Um, we'd rather make more money on the back end because we want to sell a lot of records. And um, so I think we negotiated a deal that was like, we got a bigger cut of the sales rather than like a bunch of money up front. I guess a couple things, again, like I mentioned, Victory was a pretty polarizing label and you know, occasionally you'll hear interesting things about Tony. Um, do you have any funny or like crazy things that ever happened around Tony Brummel over the years or, you know, any funny anecdotes to share? Tons. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he, he just, so we broke down, this is early, early on. This is before Looking Glass Self, maybe. And we broke down in our van uh, in a snowstorm in Indiana. Um, and the engine of, of our van blew. Yeah, this was definitely before Looking Glass Self because Chris was there. He was still the singer. And we broke down in the middle of the night and I just remember walking. This is like one of those like super funny like old school stories where we were walking through three feet of snow in the dark in the middle of nowhere to the next exit. And we walked up to the first hotel we could find and we ended up staying there for like a week. And I remember Tony drove down from Chicago and paid to get our van fixed, got us like all kinds of food and hung out. And then we were like, wow, this is cool. You know, like this is like a real dude, you know? Um, so there was that side of him that was good, you know, and you loved that side of him. Um, but, you know, he would also do crazy shit, you know, and, he was, he was nuts, you know? Like, we would walk around Chicago with him, and he'd start fights with people on the street, thinking, like, we're going to, like, back him up <laughs> or something like that. He'd start messing with, like, big skinhead guys and shit like that, and we were all like, he's nuts, you know? Like, you know, but 
he was kind of crazy like that. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, we were, we, we just kind of like, once we figured out that he was sort of erratic and all over the place, we were just so focused on our band, our music, our tours, we didn't really have time to think about what he was doing and his nonsense because we were just like, as long as we pay attention to the royalty statements and make sure we're not paying for somebody else's shit, because that would happen too. Um, us and Earth Crisis started coordinating and saying, hey, do you guys have this $5,000 uh, charge on, against your royalties here on your statement? You know, and like, what's that for? You know, like, so we started comparing notes and figuring some, figuring some shit out. But, um, you know, overall, it was a decent experience. But I guess one time where you guys didn't work with Victory um, was with the Boy Sets Fire split. Um, yeah. So that that's a band that that was also interesting because they were they had a lot to say. You know what I mean? For one. Yeah. And um, like you guys around the same time, the, I guess you guys started before them, but they kind of like started off playing small shows and they kind of got like started doing like bigger things too. It seemed like. Um, but was that split? Was that like just you guys being friends with them, or did that happen because the label wanted to do it? Like, do you remember how that all came together? I don't really remember that much. I I, I remember, you know, um, we played probably shows together, um, and we were tight with Equal Vision Records. I mean, we were tighter with those guys than we were Victory, huh. because um, we were, we were just Steve. Uh, ready that ran the label he was just like he was a good friend of ours and like whenever we went through New York we stayed with him um, and he came to a bunch of our shows all the time and um, I used to even go on trips to New York and stay with him as a friend you know so like they were more like kind of like on our level as far as like you know what we're into and um, you know just seemed like a good scene for us like as far as group of people you know that we could relate to um and uh i don't remember exactly how it came about but yeah that was how that that came together um i don't remember exactly even how like we got connected with poison's fire and all that stuff but you know so i guess that that leads into designs for automotion uh, you, you guys i think this is the first and only time you guys recorded with the same producer back to back right or yeah you guys just enjoyed uh tracks enough the first time to want to go back there the second time or was it again more of like a thing that victory had been working with them so they were kind of like just go back there and steve evitz um was the first time like anybody was really like a producer for us and he's he even at the, those in those days was more of an engineer than a producer but he um i don't know he heard something in us and knew where he wanted to take it now we told him where we wanted him to take it too so when we first got there we said listen um we've never had a recording that captured our energy and our live sound and we want this record to be like aggressive like that so he did and he he, he was the one who really tweaked the snare drum higher, and he was the one that pushed my singing and pushed my vocals and my screaming like so much harder than I had ever done before, and like push pushed my uh, register up even higher because he was having me scream so hard. 
Um, and then he was such a perfectionist and like so tight about everything. Everything had to be like right on. And so he kind of tuned in that kind of like um, helmet stop and go kind of like sound that we had. You know, like he was the one that made that like really, really, really tight. Um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night one time because we slept at the studio and waking up at like three in the morning and he was still at the control board stop start and stopping every little space in the guitars were like dan and then you know he would just be like hitting the buttons make sure there was no noise in between those stops wow like he was like obsessive like that so we we knew we wanted to go back and record with him again i don't i don't i guess i don't really have a lot to add to that to that album i don't know if there's, if there's much you want to add to that or if you want to just kind of talk about the, the the last couple albums a little bit too or well, the thing is about Designs for Automotion is um, <clears throat> there's things about it that I really like, but overall, when I go back and listen to our records, um, I kind of like that record the least. And I've talked about it with the other Samcase guys a little bit, and um, you know, I think we were sort of becoming, um, I don't know, like we call it the warp to our curse because like we were like playing so we were becoming like a warp tour band more than a hardcore band and you know i think we started thinking about writing songs that would cater to more of the kids at the warp tour than anything and um which is lame and like i i remember looking at your notes leading up to this like you know your you know um any regrets and i really regret that i really regret that we didn't kind of like you know, not that I wanted to make um, progression through learning part two, but like, you know, I think we should have like taken what was working on that album and built on that more rather than trying to like, you know, write like some stuff that was going to be more uh, tolerable for like the young first young kid coming to his first work tour, you know. It's actually interesting because I had that album on tonight when I was giving my son his bath. I've been listening to your discography to kind of prepare for the interview and it's obviously like not my favorite album of you guys. I would definitely say progression through Unlearning is my favorite Snapcase album. But when I was listening to it tonight, I was just like, man, I like the way you guys are kind of experimenting with more sounds. And I did like, like that. It was kind of like, it's definitely like some of your catchier stuff, which probably goes back to what you're saying. You're writing more for that warped tour crowd, but I can definitely see what you're saying about, you know, more sticking to your guns and, and not like trying to write for a certain audience or something like that. What, what, I guess if, if we start talking about end transmission, was there a reason why you guys decided to uh, switch to Brian McTurnan at that point? Do you remember? Or was it just kind of uh, mm. like the way things worked out? I'm not so sure. I'm trying to remember why, how that worked out. I think we, we recorded, um, I think we recorded, we must have done a song with him or something. I, I don't remember where that was. And we had known Brian forever. I mean, we knew Brian when he played in Ashes because Ashes opened up for Snapcase, or we played together in D.C. a couple times, like way, way, way back. Um, you know, and of course, Battery we played with, and, and then his brother was in Damnation, and Snapcase and Damnation used to play together quite a bit too. So and they were they were a killer band. Um, but uh, I don't know, he must have... You know, it must have been one of those things where Brian was starting to record things that we were listening to. 
and that's sort of how it came together. I, I don't really remember what happened with Steve Evans, or I think maybe Tracks East was shutting down, or something happened with Tracks East in, in Jersey. I, I, I don't exactly remember how that happened, but. I, mean, I know he was recording. Brian McTurn started recording a lot of bands around that time. Um, I mean, I had like a small record label around here, and I was trying to send a couple local bands from Rochester there, and he never, like, he was always booked up so far in advance that it was just like forget about it type thing, you know. And you know, at the time was what when we were go when we were there, he had just recorded um, Hot Water Music, and he was also um, recording Thrice a lot. Now I'm guessing. I don't. I guess I don't know quite as much about the Bright Flashes, but I'm guessing that both those albums were kind of like record. Like the, the Bright Flashes was more just like demos and stuff that, that didn't make it onto. No, they weren't even demos. They were full songs were they... that were recorded with a transmission for the most part. And um, but we had we had way more material than one out for one album. So, but not enough for like a double album kind of a thing. So we just decided it would be better to you know make you know, one, one album. Um, and, uh, at the time, I think we were listening to way more, you know, this was like after like refused shape of punk and at the drive-in was like something that we were really into. So like we were becoming even further away from where we were at progression through our learning, you know, like much further apart from that now. Um, and even a bit of Deftones and Glassjaw and stuff like that, you know, so um, that's kind of like what I think had an impact on, on and transmission. But um, after playing a lot of the end transmission songs live, I really, I realized like we could have, re- we could have performed them better in the studio and done a better job with them and there were songs on there that i think are really good that you know unfortunately a lot of people you know either don't respect that era on snapcase or or don't appreciate it but um you know there's some cool stuff on there and, and i think is like way kind of like more interesting and heavier than what we were doing on designs for automotion for sure so now was there still like a lot of heavy touring at this point or were you guys all kind of finishing school and uh on and off on and off um you know i i don't think we knew where it was going you know what i mean i think um progression through unlearning looking between looking by itself and like maybe a year after progression through unlearning it was like everything was coming our way but by the time designs, we were already kind of like old news, you know what I mean? And like, you know, all the newer bands were like, you know, that's when like bands like Thursday and, and shit like that were becoming way bigger. Um, so, you know, that's um, I think we weren't sure. Like we were like, we don't know where we stand, you know, like the hardcore scene isn't the same. It doesn't really exist the way we knew it. Um, you know, we're not like the flavor of the week for like stuff like, you know, the warp tour kind of thing anymore. So we weren't sure where we'd fit into everything. I guess for you guys, like, and I know we'll get to this in a second with the breakup, but like, was there ever like a time where it's like, like how many albums do we have in us type thing? And like, how, like, how far are we going to push this? Or did it just kind of eventually you, you just kind of knew that, that you weren't going to do the band like, you know? Well, for end transmission. So 
Tim or drummer, he recorded and transmission, but then he basically left the band right after we were done recording. And so we got Ben in the band. Um, and there was a tour where like John couldn't do the tour and we were touring in Canada and, um, this guy, Jamie from Philadelphia was playing with us and he was a cool guy and he brought a whole different thing to, to Snapcase. But I just remember being on stage without Tim, without John. And I was thinking like, oh my God, this does not even feel like Snapcase to me. So I started thinking like, I don't know, do I even want to do this anymore either? You know what I mean? Like, we're just trying, we're just trying to keep this going and rather than, it's not really coming to us anymore, you know? So, um, I think that's kind of what was going on and that's why it started to fizzle out for us, you know? Now, did you already kind of know that the the end was coming when you recorded the last album then? Or was it kind of like after the album came out, you guys kind of... No. No? No, we didn't know. We were, we were like full throttle at that point. We were like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be fun. We're all about it. So, um, yeah. But like, and then, and, tra- and transmission was crazy. Um, Victory worked that album super hard and it totally worked in Europe. Um, we got tons of like publicity in Europe on that album and our shows were actually getting bigger at the time in, in Europe. Um, and so that was, that was good. But like the States, we started feeling like we were becoming slowly becoming one of those bands that was like old news, you know, like, um, I, I, I don't know. You know, and I was like, shit, I don't want to become one of those bands that's just big in Europe now. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's lame. So, yeah, it definitely does seem like there are a lot of bands that just kind of do the European uh, circuit at this point or whatever, or I guess when there are shows. Um, but, yeah. but so yeah, I guess now we're, we're, we're kind of talking more about uh, Bright Flashes then. So, you guys record the album, you're not, you're not really totally sure. Like, like how, how much touring was there until you guys kind of started to realize that, that the end was kind of, kind of there for you guys? I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I feel like in transmission, we never really felt like, um, I felt like we were always still promoting those songs by the time we were finishing, you know what I mean? We're still trying to get people like to listen to them. Um, you know, there was just a, a couple times, like, our album leaked, leaked one time, like, before, like, it came out, and we were on tour in Canada, and, like, all the kids were going, like, not singing the words to it. Like, that freaked us out um, at that show. But um, besides that, I just remember always just, like, working super hard to, like, push these songs and just feeling like Snapcase people are not into this, you know? Like, just the way it is, you know? Um, some of the later Snapcase fans were, but like the original Snapcase fans definitely weren't. And uh, that was really hard for me to swallow, I think. So, you know, in Europe, I started to appreciate the fact that people that were there in the beginning were there still in the end. You know, and I remember like thinking like, oh, this is cool. You know, like you go to a Snapcase show in, in, in Germany and you're gonna see like people in the crowd wearing, you know, everything from like Youth of Today t-shirts to like, Queens of the Stone Age t-shirts like this like our fan base in Europe was like very broad like that and I, I love that about it um 
but in the U.S., it's kind of like, you know, you're either all in on the hardcore thing or you're all in on this. It's hard. It was still really hard to kind of like bridge that. Yeah, there were there were definitely weren't very like when I when I even when I like from now I don't know how it is now I guess because I'm not as involved with the scene but like it seems like there's like just so many different subgenres now that it's hard to keep track but like back then it seemed like like I was talking about with the Victory Records thing like you were either one or the other like you weren't like hard like like hardcore was so small back then too like you were saying in the beginning of the interview that it just always seemed weird to me that we couldn't have like like all these diverse like bands and labels where it would you know what I mean like it was so small that it, it, it they just made it even smaller I feel like by making it like that you know but so so then I guess you, you there, there was a last show um like how long like like what let like I guess what led up to the last show like what was the build-up like do you guys have like a like were you were you thinking like this is definitely the end and we're, like like what the reunion thing obviously came later but like like when a band breaks up, like are you thinking like this is it and like we're gonna play like a last show and it's gonna be like a like a send off type thing or whatever? Or? I think that's what we thought. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, and we also thought like you know, hardcore as we know it is done, and you know, um, our fans are kind of gone, and you know, um, and transmission didn't you know do what we thought maybe it was gonna do. So yeah, that's was kind of was leading to all that um yeah and then we played that final show which was a blast but like um i don't know i don't think we ever expected to play more after that you know i think that i know the first time we played again after that though it was um norm um who was in texas is the reason and, and did antimatter um he put together a show in Brooklyn that was a fundraiser for um uh, uh, uh what's his name Jerry uh, from Jawbox um Jay Robbins it was is uh, I think it was for his son and so we got asked to play those shows those two shows there and that was a you know he's like would you guys get back together to do this and I, I think that's that was the first time we played together again. Um, so it was a good reason to like get back together and play. Um, and then it just was fun and it went well. And we're like, you know, as long as like this is fun and we're, we're, we're decent, then we'll still do it. And we just didn't want to, you know, keep doing it just for the sake of doing it or something or cause we were bored. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you guys haven't done like a million reunion shows. I mean, I know there's been like a few like festival appearances and like one-offs here and there, but like, it like like that, I guess that's my my next question. Like, is it like when you do like these random shows, like the the to the season show, like is it just kind of like whenever you get a good offer, you're gonna take it as long as everybody's available, or is it just kind of like? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of that, but it's also like. Um we love we love hanging out together still and like we love doing these shows so um you know in the california takeover that we did last year like well this year it was in february it seems like forever ago but um you know that was like that was the right kind of thing like that just felt right and it, and it was it was super fun and it was a really those two shows were really great so um but yeah we're, we're not expecting to play more than a couple times a year um but it's just gotta be the right thing now like you said 
I mean, obviously the right thing might not happen for a long time at this point, given the the current circumstances, which, you know, that would be a whole nother discussion, obviously. I guess we kind of talked about a few things like you discussed that I, I had mentioned. Um, are, are there any other like regrets or anything else that you would do differently in hindsight, like with the band, like, you know, looking back on things? No, I think just like that era of designs for automotion, like I think I would have go back then and, and write a more aggressive record rather than a less aggressive record. Um, and, uh, you know, other than that, I can't really, you know, I don't really believe in having a lot of regrets, you know what I mean? Like, you can't plan this shit out perfectly, you just, it is what it is, and you become what you are, and just, it's just how it goes. So I don't know, and again, time is of the essence now, probably, obviously, but I don't know if we talked about, like, funny uh, tour memories. There is one funny memory that I'd like to share with you. I, I doubt you'll remember this, but uh, January 1st, 2000, you guys played in Syracuse, and the band Good Clean Fun was playing earlier in the night in the day. And I, musically, I was never a really huge fan of that band, but their singer would kind of say and do funny stuff sometimes, so I would watch them play just to kind of, you know, see what the joke was. And so that day, he's like... You know, we love uh, Snapcase, but uh, we kind of want to have some fun when they play Incarnation tonight. So uh, when it gets when they start playing Incarnation, everybody run up and sing along Incarnation at the wrong time. And, like, not many people did it, but, like, seven or eight people did end up doing that later on. And you were kind of just looking out there like, what the fuck is this? Like, what's going on right now? So I guess my question... I uh, It was... And, and, again, it was... I don't know if you, know, if you remember that band, Good Clean Fun. It was, like, Issa and Mike who ran Fight Records. And he just, it was a, you know, it was just a goof forever. He was just like, yeah, so when they play <laughs> Incarnation, everybody just yell it at the wrong time. And I was just kind of standing in the back, like, that's kind of silly, but I'm watching a couple people do it, and you just kind of look out there like, what the hell just happened or whatever? I totally um, did. I was like, how hard is it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> were there ever any, like, like jokes or goofs well, we were, that you guys... We were friends with those, we were right. friends with those guys, though. And, and Mike, Mike Fight, you said, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I, like... Me and I were messaging each other just like a month ago. Yeah. So. No, I know it was all in good, like, well, not to pun, but I know it was all in good, clean fun. <laughs> um, but, like, did you guys ever have, like, not just with them, but, like, other bands or, like, in-band, like, like pranks or, like, funny stuff that you would do, like, on tour to kind of pass the time or whatever, you know what I mean? I mean, there's tons of that stuff. Like, on the spot, can I think of something? Um, I don't know. There's, like, lots of embarrassing moments you know i remember playing a show in um in arizona where um our bass player at the time bob something happened where like he and i used to always fuck with each other on stage so like i would like you know wait for him to like i don't know i used to like uh drop kick him all the time and he'd go flying backwards like playing bass like trip over something you know things like that and then he'd wait until I'd go up to the crowd with the mic and he'd kick me in the butt and like I'd fall, fly forward into the crowd in an accident. So this one show, I don't, he never, ever, ever spoke on the mic. And we played the first song and all of a sudden you hear, um, I'm, I, I say something in the mic like, are all the, volume, are all the levels okay? Or can you, know, can you hear okay? And all of a sudden I hear, yeah, but your vocals sound like shit. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, look at the guys. Like, did the sound guy just say that? You know? <laughs> He's like, yeah. What are you stupid? I just said it sounds like shit. You know? I'm like, what the hell? So I'm like getting like 
super mad, and everyone in the crowd knows it's Bob. Like you can see him. I don't know what. Mike's talking to me, and I'm I'm looking there like trying to see through the lights. And it was super embarrassing, you know. Like he was like totally, like, he totally got me on that one. But um, you know, there was like there's definitely pranks, you know. Um, I have probably more cool stories than funny stories, you know, like. Um, touring with sick of it all in Europe and um I think it was like maybe morbid angel or who was it obituary I think it was both of those bands played this show and um so it was like the last show of the tour and it was like this hardcore slash metal fest combo and it was huge and the show was super good and Sick of it all was second last, and I think it was either obituary or morbid angel that they go on after. And I'll never forget like the sick of it all show was so insanely good, and we messed with them, we pulled all these pranks on them, but then like there was confetti. I think they like Armand picked up his whole drum kit and like literally like threw it across the stage. It was like a bottle war going on. We're like whipping bottles, like kicked over every amp, microphone stand. When they were done, it just like looked like World War Three and hit that <laughs> club. I mean, like everything was destroyed on stage. It was just like water spilled everywhere. It was a like, huge mess. And then like thinking, oh my God, another band's got to play yet. And I just remember thinking that's crazy. It was like the most crazy thing. But, um, Here's a quick funny story. So the band No Effects, huge, huge, huge in Europe. I mean, like, and in Canada. And we played, like, lots of shows through Sick of It All, or just being at festivals where we ended up playing with No Effects. And we even did a tour in Europe with, with No Effects um, with a bunch of bands. It was a huge package tour. And those guys used to consider us like they we were the hardcore straight edge guys so like they would do their minor threat song and they'd always bring us out on stage i remember being in front of like eighty thousand people during the no effects set one time and going out where they played minor threat straight edge wow (laughs) crazy shit like that but um we were talking like reunions and stuff um so i guess you know in a in a covid free world you guys you know, we'll probably play a couple shows here and there again. Like, there's no... Well, last thing... So, the last show we played was in February, and that was right before COVID. And that was, uh, excuse me, California Takeover. And um, they recorded... The the show in L.A. was recorded again. So, um, I actually just was listening to the mixes from that the other day. Um, We picked uh, three songs, and we're supposed to pick a fourth. And... um, I don't know if Andrew's going to put something out from his label, Andrew from Strife, or what, but I'm um, going to re, uh, re um, you know, re-release, like, California Takeover 2020. Oh, wow. So, um, and then, uh, who knows, like, if we were to play more shows anywhere, we were already talking before COVID, you know, we were going to do California Takeover shows, um, the three, three of us together in different places. Yeah, because that's something I was thinking when I saw. Because obviously, No Echo has a lot of really cool stuff, and I saw all the features they were doing for the for the when you guys played out there, and I was like, man, it'd be cool if 
you know, those three bands played around here together again, because, you know, um, so obviously, you know, hopefully there will be shows again at some point, and that can happen somewhere in the Northeast. Um, yeah, we were supposed to play This Is Hardcore, um, was, was one of the ones that they wanted to bring the package to, um, but we got a lot of, like, a lot of interest, like, immediately for, like, different parts of the world, too, so, you know, we'll see, I don't know. It's actually, it's really cool that, um, you know, people around the world still care and are interested in, in doing that kind of stuff. And, and like, what do you look at, like, as if you even have thought about this at all, like, what do you think, like, the legacy of Snapcase is at this point? Um, I would say that, you know, um, the further we get away from it, and I see what people kind of, like, appreciate of Snapcase um, through social media and stuff like that. You know, I realize it's more of like um, the Looking Glass self-progression era um, stuff. And, um, you know, I, I really don't know. I mean, that's not in my hands as far as what the legacy will be at this point. But, like, um, you know, I, I would think that progression through unlearning will kind of, like, embody, like, you know, our legacy. Um I think as an album, it's kind of like uh, been cited on, on more articles, you know, than any of our other albums that have and stuff like that, you know. And, um, you know, I guess like our legacy will hopefully for me, like just be like, a, um, you know, a piece in time of, of the music scene, you know, like, you know, if there's a discussion about 90s hardcore music, you know, I would like to. You know, I'd like to think we'd be part of that discussion. You know, so as far as our legacy goes, you know, that's that's kind of what I what I think. And and then also, I you know, I should I should mention this um, lyrically. You know, we didn't really get into that, but um, so for a big chunk of our our time as a band, we were like a straight edge band but we never promoted ourselves as a straight edge band. And I'll, I remember even touring with Strife and Earth Crisis and those guys being like, why don't you guys X up? Like, we didn't even know if you guys were straight edge, but you guys are like as straight edge as anybody. Like, you know, why, why don't you guys X up? And we're like, oh, it's just not our thing, you know? But we used to get, um, we used to meet a lot of people that really appreciated our band because of that. And we used to get letters and, and emails about people that like recovered from um, substance use or or whatever it might have been, and they would say, you know, your band because you didn't judge me because I didn't feel like, you know, you guys held straight edge up, you know, like on this pedestal, like it was your band, not the straight edge bands that got me clean. You know what I mean? And I always thought that was really interesting. And like our lyrics were always about like kind of like finding yourself within yourself, not within some bigger group, like. You know, find if, you know, rather than trying to identify with like, oh, I identify with this scene, I identify with this political view, I, you know, identify, you know, what are you as an individual person, you know, and, and can you like those things, but still not be the same as all of those people, you know, and that's like what like songs like Caboose are about, you know, so like, um, you know, I would I would like to think that that would be what what our, our legacy would be as far as like the message behind the band was kind of uh, you know comfortable with who, learn learn to be comfortable with who you are. I mean, we never really 
ultimately get there, I don't think, but like, you know, working on it and recognizing that it's something important, you know, uh, that's the meaning behind most of the lyrics. Yeah, and I think most of us, you know, came to hardcore because we knew we were kind of like outcast people from like regular society or whatever, so obviously I can relate to a lot of the lyrics, and I, I am kind of kicking myself now for not having more lyrical topics uh, in the interview, but obviously we've had, uh, you know, quite a little discussion tonight as is. Um, the last two topics I have basically do go together, though. Um, a good friend of the podcast, uh, Rob Antonucci, actually came up with this uh, question, Um and if it's, if it's, you know, I know it's late, so if it's tough for you to come up with, I, I totally understand. But if, if there was, like, a Buffalo Hardcore Punk uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, like, who do you think you would put on something like that? Oh, yeah. So I, I, you did have sent me this in the, um, the notes. Uh, and, you know, it, to me, it's not about who or, like, what person or face or band. But, like, so for me, Home of the Hits Record Store is a big one. Um, that was the local underground, you know, place where you got the, not only did you go pick up the music, um, but that's where all the flyers were for all the shows. Like, you know, before the internet, you know, you needed to find out what was happening. And that's where you would go as a place like Home of the Hits. And you'd go see what flyers are pinned up there. I mean, that was one of the main reasons you went there. So for me, Home of the Hits was big. Um, the hardcore radio show at WBNY was another big one because they also, you know, started to promote the, the local bands as well and um, for those shows. So like Zero Tolerance got bigger and bigger because you could hear them on that show and like you'd be like, wow, you know. Um, so those are two things that would be big for me. Um, you know, there's a lot of people and a lot of great bands that came out. So I, I don't know if I could identify just like, you know, a couple. Um, but um, trying to think here, what else? Um, you know, and and I guess some of the clubs that kind of like were like consistent. You know, so like the River Rock was also like. I think a big thing, you know, because that was when I think of my experience with the spirit of hardcore, and it, it for me it all came from the, the shows at the River Rock, you know, um, the live show at the place. Hey there, my battery's dying. At the place where you um. <laughs> were part of the scene. Like you knew all the guys, all the people in the pit. You knew, you know, it was your scene. Um, that to me, the essence and the spirit of hardcore, for me, that all exists there. So um, I would say those would be those things. I think you kind of answered the next question too with the River Rock, but um, if you if you could pick a favorite era of Buffalo hardcore, um, what would you, what, what do you think you would pick? era of Buffalo Hardcore, yeah, it would be the River Rock, for sure. Um, you know, those shows, so many good shows. So many. I mean, because the, the River Rock, um, you know, whether it was any of those, like, big rev shows, and um, or Sick of It All, or Slapshot, had so many good shows at, at, at 
favorite I think um, but then there was also bands like like I saw Primus play there and I saw like Rollins band play there and you know there was a lot of other really good shows Seven Seconds was one of my all time favorite shows I ever saw there um, but yeah I would say uh, that early 90s River Rock era Cool. Yeah, that pretty much wraps up the questions. Um, obviously, aside from the lyrics, um, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd want to, uh, you know, or any any additional comments or anything like that? No, I really just I appreciate the uh, the time and the interview and the opportunity to talk. So thanks. That wraps up my interview with Daryl Taberski. I'd like to give a special thanks to Daryl for taking the time to do this interview. As always, thanks to Rob Antonucci for all the help with the podcast, and thanks to my family for the never-ending support. The next few episodes will feature interviews with Chris Pogue, Nick Lemesis, and Brian Rao. As always, check out EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com and give us a follow on Instagram at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast. See everyone real soon, and stay safe.